the goal of the work, besides the fact that I enjoy it, and, and my greatest enjoyment comes from the widest sharing, the professional value also is I think it leads clients, it leads others to say, we want to talk to the person who created that. So for me, sharing it more widely makes it more valuable. Having a bigger quote unquote readership kind of builds the influencing power. And there's also a ton of time where I'll put something out. And then just as I've tried to improve upon the work of others, I'll see others improve upon my work. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, with in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications. GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. Today, we are fortunate to have Bruce Melman with us. With over two decades of experience in public policy, business, and the law, Bruce helps leaders and organizations understand, anticipate, and navigate political risk. He is the founder of Melman Consulting, and Bruce leads an impactful lobbying firm in Washington, D.C. that it seems like everybody knows perhaps because of his quarterly infographic analyses, which are consistently picked up by national media and eagerly consumed by tens of thousands of readers around the world. We're going to talk about this breakthrough tactic with him today. Before starting his firm, Bruce served as Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Technology Policy under President George W. Bush. He also worked as a senior leadership aide in the House of Representatives, general counsel to a national political party committee, and policy counsel to Cisco Systems. So he obviously understands how U.S. government works, and we're excited to get that perspective. An adjunct professor and board member of the Washington campus, Bruce frequently lectures MBA candidates on effective business-government relations. He is a highly sought-after keynote speaker on policy and political trends, regularly headlining business conferences and strategic planning sessions. Bruce, we are so thrilled to have you with us today. Welcome to Chief Influencer. Anthony, thanks. It's great to be here. Now, One of the things that we're focused on in this series is that we believe some of the most effective leaders are more than chief executives. They're chief influencers. And as a government relations leader, I wanted to get your thought on the impact that you want to see in the world. Tell us more about that, particularly through the lens of the work that you do. And who do you have to influence to achieve that impact? Look, it's a great question. Uh, I guess I'd start with when the itch to change the world was was uh, stronger. Uh, I was more likely to be in government service or in politics or campaigns, you know, both for family reasons and because that's a hard pace to sustain. I started a bipartisan firm. So at the narrowest, my goal is to try to influence uh, policymakers on behalf of the clients that our firm decides to represent. Uh, more broadly, though, uh, I see the work that I do, uh, while narrow on a client by client basis, 
is part of a broader macro um, shaping public policy during a pretty extraordinary time in American and world history. And so, you know, it takes, you got to cover one of your eyes to kind of meaningfully appreciate it. But uh, the work that we're doing is part of a uh, modernization of the policy architecture that was created in and for the 20th century, but isn't necessarily adequate for the 21st. And that's the big discussion that's happening, even though it's narrow on a client by client basis. You um, speak with uh, these MBA students who come from all over the country who are part of the Washington campus. So do you. And I do too. And it's such a great program. And one of the things that um, I think that program is designed around is the idea that people in business sometimes think about government or Washington, it's an afterthought for them. Um, And your message is that they really need to pay attention to it. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about the perspective that you bring to these executive and MBA students who um, come through DC as part of the Washington campus. Oh, sure. Look, I love doing that. It's a lot of fun. Um, I guess I have three goals. First, uh, to your point, the whole reason the organization exists is to help future business leaders understand the uh, risks and opportunities of government as a stakeholder. Too many uh, ignore it. Number two, I try to uh, I both try to explain what's happening in the broader uh, policy and, and political environment because I also see these future business leaders as national and community leaders. And understanding what's happening uh, broadly helps them be better community and and, and individual leaders. Uh, by the way, it's also a great opportunity to kind of test out new slides and new ways to say things prior to uh, hitting the road with uh, with paid audiences and and you know boardrooms. But then number three, um, I have the added challenge that I don't know that you have of every room I walk into with business students starts as a room hostile towards the pol- towards the business of lobbying. There are presumptions made, I think, fundamentally unfairly that lobbying is some weird, arcane, backroom, smoke-filled uh, you know, evil that happens to them. And I always say when I start, when I'm done, you're going to like PowerPoint and love lobbying. And I'm, I'm thrilled over more than a decade about the number of emails and, and, and DMs on LinkedIn of folks who say, I absolutely uh, think lobbying is cool. And I now think maybe it's a field I want to go into. Hey, that... If you could get people to feel that, I mean, I think that that's a huge achievement. And it's probably one of the reasons that you're one of their uh, highest rated speakers. So congratulations for that. You mentioned lobbyists, right? Washington is full of lobbyists. Most people probably don't know a lot about lobbying. But in my experience, you're one of those lobbyists who whose name everybody seems to know. And I think that's obviously in large part because of the uh, quarterly infographics that you release, the slide decks. Um, also the interviews that you do, I think it's pretty incredible that your slide decks have been reported on in the Hill. I mean, who gets media coverage for sending out research, but, but you have, so can you tell us a little bit about why do you do this? How did all of this start and why does it work so well, particularly in a crowded media landscape? Yeah, wow. A lot there to unpack. So I guess it started because when I do a presentation, I always enjoyed what my old boss at Cisco Systems did. John Chambers was the CEO of Cisco Systems during the tech bubble and beyond. Uh, Unbelievably dynamic speaker, amazing salesman, and he was dyslexic. 
And so one of the things you learned when you were doing briefing materials is lose the lawyerly five pager and cut it down to a one pager of bullets, which takes a lot more work. So what really matters? You can say it in three paragraphs a lot easier than you could say it in one sentence and be right. So I learned how to brief better. But I also saw that he was the only guy I ever noticed who gave a PowerPoint presentation that in my mind didn't suck. And the reason is because he took most of the words away. And what he would do is he would narrate either a data, a graph or a pie chart or, or an illustration or something that that kind of evoked the idea that he was then explaining with words. And I remember thinking, I want to try to be like this guy. And, and you know, I'm still not, but I'm still trying. And so when I was at Cisco, I tried that. When I went into the government, I would do that with a lot of slides. When I joined, when I started the, the, the uh, lobbying firm, I kept doing it. And what I found is every time I do a presentation, I'd have a large number of the attendees email me and say, can I get a copy of that presentation? That was, you know, I liked the way you organized the issues and the thinking and, you know, you kind of made it more of a narrative and either I want to, I want to use it myself somewhere else, or I want to revisit and think about it. And so for maybe a decade, I was doing that. And I, you know, I started sharing, I've, if I did a slide, if I did a presentation for you, I'd share my deck with other clients, but I used to try to keep it a tightly guarded secret. Um, and every now and then we'd give one to Chris Saliza at the post. And, you know, suddenly you'd have that kind of that dopamine hit of a media, you know, people suddenly were all talking about it and liked it. And I was literally having lunch with Charlie Cook one day. And I said, hey, by the way, I do this weird kind of hobby sort of thing. And he's like, every time you do one of those seven people send it to me, Bruce, which led the light bulb to go off in my head of rather than uh, other people sharing my work, I should share my work. So that's kind of where it began. Uh, what I found is uh, first and foremost, I do it because I enjoy it. You know, some people play golf, my handicaps in the twenties, I like golf, but I, I just find I'm fascinated by history. I'm fascinated by politics. Um, and, uh, and I kind of like the, you know, the, I haven't, I haven't had the time to, in my mind to write a book, but I like the challenge of what do you want to say? How do you organize it? What's compelling? What's not? What are the data? turns out the data doesn't prove things. So first, you know, it's it's something I enjoy. Second, I find uh, clients like it and appreciate it. And so, you know, there's a lot of awesome lobbying firms and way better lobbyists than I am out in the marketplace. But this helped both me and I think helps our firm be, a, you know, they're the firm with the guy who does the slide deck. It's it's a thing, um, you know, and uh, and hopefully the chief influencer podcast, something that distinguishes your, your company as well. Um, last, not that I, I'd love to tell you I was this, thoughtful. I wasn't, but I, I don't try to sell anything. I mean, obviously I don't go out of my way to dunk on clients because that's not a smart way to do things, but I'm not trying to carry water for clients. I don't have a, you know, and if you know, you want to learn more, here's the number, call your local lobbyist. It's for me, you know, I just want to put something out that, that people who I consider smart and thoughtful agree, you know, they don't have to agree with everything, but agree. This was a good use of my time. I enjoyed reading this. I found it interesting and helpful or I, you know, I want to talk to you about it. I want to hear more um, than uh, than you know. I kind of want to hear the the talk version of what you just published. Um, it it turns out it's wonderfully helpful for business, but it, this was much more of a kind of a either a passion project or the world's lamest hobby. <laughs> I uh, it's you know I, I love that you kind of geek out and enjoy making this stuff, right? Because I think that comes through when you actually enjoy doing something. One of the things I'm wondering is, as you talk about, you used to keep it a secret and then you said, hey, rather than other people share my stuff, I should share my own stuff, right? Um, I bet there are other leaders out there who have great material expertise, research, and they have team members or maybe their own inner voice saying, 
we can't do that. You know, we can't give that away. And I wonder what you might say to folks like that, or if you've even had that opportunity to, you know, somebody's said that to you and you've had an opportunity to share your point of view with them because you certainly made a shift from keeping it kind of private to just saying, hey, whoever wants it, I mean, you probably have competitors to sign up for it, right? Well, so not only that, yes, I do. And I'm happy to share every friend, competitor, anybody who emails me, I don't care who they are. I put them on my distribution list. I don't know, you know, the large majority of people on the distribution list, but we've definitely had lots of, uh, thoughts and conversations about, you know, with, with folks from, you know, the VC and the money world saying this, you can monetize this plenty of competitors like, well, you know, why are you giving this out? I just saw your competitor literally giving the speech where they took six year slides and they put them on there with their logo. They took your name off it, you know, and, but, but it's like, literally it's your point, your words, your graph. Um, and why, you know, why are you quote unquote giving it away? I guess there are a couple of thoughts. I mean, first, my theory is Ideally, it, this isn't like Coca-Cola's secret formula. First, I'm not sure how many original ideas I really have. I think I'm better at kind of the mashup of finding seven other people's original ideas, but one from tech, one from finance, one from geopolitics, one from you know campaigns and elections, and somehow weaving them into a coherent whole. And I feel like that's what I'm better at. So I should start with the humility of if I don't have that many original ideas, I shouldn't act like my work is more original than it, it probably really is. But I also feel like the goal of the work, besides the fact that I enjoy it and, and my greatest enjoyment comes from the widest sharing, the professional value also is I think it leads clients, it leads others to say, we want to talk to the person who created that. And if you want to go ahead and copy my stuff, it, you know, it's it'd be harder for you to explain. You could explain what it means to you, but you know, nobody is going around saying they created it. So for me, sharing it more widely makes it more valuable. Having a bigger quote unquote readership um kind of builds the the this is called the chief influencer, but it builds the influencing power. Um, and, uh, and there's also a ton of time where I'll put something out and, and just as I've tried to improve upon the work of others, I'll see others improve upon my work, you know, and I'll realize there's a little bit of, you hit yourself in the head and you realize, man, I should have, you know, uh, so I did one, I did one called, uh, the, uh, the roaring 2020s. And then a friend of mine, Alex, uh, Ross, who, 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 Alec Ross, who, who, uh, who worked for secretary Clinton. He, I knew him at a nonprofit. He ran for governor of Maryland. He's an author now of a couple of really successful books. The most recent one was called the raging 2020s. And, you know, he, he has his own background, his own experience, his own ideas, but I'm hitting myself in the head being like raging so much better than roaring. Like, I can't believe I didn't come up with that thematically. A lot of the points he made and a lot of the points that I'd made earlier in my slide deck were, were similar of, we both see this as a fairly decisive decade where the the policies that are the 20th century policies and institutions have to be reformed for the 21st. So uh, as a rule to date, having it more widely distributed leads to more people seeing it, more people reaching out, more people signing up, more people inviting me to come speak. And I feel like more clients feeling like I am someone they're glad they get to work with. And that's, you know, at, for the business, that's the core goal. Yeah. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about the goals and just even results. So, I mean, you've amassed an extremely impressive following. Um, and I know some communications advisors get pushback from their leaders about marketing and branding and communications efforts because the leaders want to know, well, what's the result going to be? How do I translate followers or eyeballs 
into success for the company. Um, and so you mentioned, you know, you, you're getting media interviews, speaking invitations. Can you talk a little bit more about how this approach has helped you and the firm achieve results and, and some of the things you've thought about and, and where maybe you don't even always care about that because it's something that, you know, you are passionate about. But I think that is, um, is something that, that leaders sometimes struggle with. And I'd love to hear your thought process around it. Did my partners put you up to asking what the hell is the value of this crap you do all the time, Melman? Because it feels like maybe they did. I, look, I ask myself that question all the time. Uh, there's there is one in my mind, maybe more, but I can think of at least one client, but only one, where the path was I published something. Uh, somebody in California who runs an association saw the slide deck covered in the media read it, thought, hey, this is really interesting. And I think my uh, association members would like it, invited me to speak, you know, for a couple of bucks. So I, for the firm, I guess you get a couple of dollars when I get to speak somewhere. So I spoke to them. But then one of the attendees thought, man, this is awesome. Like our board needs to hear this. So they invite me to speak to their board. And six to nine months later, they need a lobbyist to help with certain work. And we're the first folks they call. And it turns out the nature of what they needed, which was part environmental, part trade, or two of our, we have just two home run hitters on those topics. So it turned out we actually could be useful to them. That's, it feels that that's something that clear is more of the exception than the rule. Um, again, I, I feel like lobbying itself, like law, is a bit of a commodity. So all of us are looking for what makes us interesting and what makes us different. I tell you what makes us interesting and different is quote unquote, our people, which is both true but it's also what every other lobbying firm would say. And it's also true for every lobbying firm. So, you know, uh, in, in a world where you're always looking for some kind of differentiation, there are some number of my clients that, you know, ours is one of 15 lobbying firms. Several of them include very famous former senators and members of Congress and other, you know, really capable people who are super plugged in with the people running the world and running the country. And, and you know, maybe it's just ego, but I kind of love the fact that notwithstanding all of that firepower, when they have an executive team flown in or they need somebody to go to headquarters, we get the call. And you know, can you guys come? Because we think the way you brief is more useful than these former senators who are awesome, but kind of just like to tell stories as opposed to uh, offer information and data in a way that's both relevant and actionable, but also a narrative and not just what playbook is already writing. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what I'm hearing is there's obviously some data to support the value, but um, at some level with these sort of influence activities, do you have to trust your your gut or your instincts a little bit that you know that it's working, even though you may not have a graph like you do in, in, the, in the deck that supports how this, you know, feeds the business, but you sort of know that it's, it's a good thing to do it. Yeah, look, the, the, the uh, not quite quantifiable, but uh, you hear from so many clients, hey, this was great. Thanks. You know, can you add these people to your distribution list? Will you come speak to it? That even though I can't put a number behind that, that that's without a doubt, okay, clients like it. They find it valuable. They're asking for it. They will ask when the next one's coming out. So you start with that is is uh, is qualitative, if not quantitative. Um, again, there's also just, it's I think everybody in a professional services world is going to be most successful if they do the things they're passionate about, they're interested in that they, you know, that that give them energy in the morning when they wake up and that they want to they want to be good at or they want to be great at. So, 
Um, it's it's uh, there's a ton of anecdotes and a ton of qualitative uh, support for. I know clients value this. They've told me they value this. I just I can't give you a number that says you know I should do X hours because there is Y dollars per hour. Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, I want to ask you know any leader has to influence a mix of stakeholders. And I think that's probably somewhat unique in your industry because, um, you know, through your slide decks and your interviews, you found a way to influence the influencers. You have some pretty important, high-powered decision makers who subscribe and pay attention and follow what you're doing. And at the same time, you know, you are working on issues that require influencing the public as well. So I'm just wondering, as a former government official yourself and now, you know, working with clients on government relations, can you share what you've learned about uh, what works to connect with the public versus to connect with policymakers and other influencers and maybe how that's changed over your career. Well, that's interesting. I, I'm not sure I uh, I qualify as truly connecting with the public. I mean, it's true. My stuff gets distributed and published and I love every now and then you get like the email. I have this one, you know, Hey, I'm a professor. I'm a high school history teacher in Portland, Oregon. You know, I'd love to share this with my class if that's okay with you. I'm like that. Literally, yeah, I heard from some some officials and VIPs and electeds and others, but like that was my favorite email of the weekend because just man, this is cool. Uh, but it's not really what I'm I'm aiming to do per se. I, I think my in my mind, my target audience is a pretty narrow set of uh, policy elites. You know, and part of it is there are others. One of my favorite things that I've been able to do with this is sort of barter my way, even though my stuff's available for free, some number of people who sell this sort of analysis or intelligence for Wall Street or for or for um, you know, for other businesses have added me to their distribution lists for free because we got to meet at a conference where we both were keynotes or, or otherwise just on email mutual admiration, you know, and they find mine my work interesting and maybe helpful to them. And so it allows me to read, you know, Louis Gov is, is at GovCall. It's a Wall Street investment front advisory firm. I don't know how many people know them or follow them outside of that world, but they're so interesting and they're so thoughtful and they make me often because they're looking at what's happening in policy and politics through an investment and a non-US lens. They often see other, you know, to kill the analogy, other parts of the elephant that I'm not seeing because the trunk's right in front of me. And I feel like it helps me get a much better rounded, just like going around the country giving speeches. You meet people and you realize, Melman, you are a uh, an East Coast elitist uh, Washington insider. And when you actually talk to real people, you realize I am not uh, balanced or objective in how I see things. And likewise, when you see non-government relations, non-campaign, non-American professionals thinking about things, um, it helps it helps you get a fuller picture. And so part of what I what I have always wanted to do is, you know, Axios is brilliant. Playbook and and Politico is brilliant. Bloomberg is brilliant. There's so many people, you know, uh, Ron Brownstein. I mean, they're all these great ana analysts. And so trying to figure out, well, how can I say something that's a little bit different, that's additive, that that, that makes people scratch their heads, that maybe brings in some of these ideas that I saw from you know, from a different lane. I mean, I, Ron Brownstein's a thousand times smarter than I will ever be on politics and campaigns and elections, but I, I guarantee I read more about technology than he does. And I bet I read more from kind of Wall Street analysts than he does. And again, I don't mean to run down somebody I admire, but, you know, he's way deeper and I 
think I go broader. And so, you know, then if there's a way for me to tie some stuff together, um, you know, a big win for me is when you get lots of uh, people emailing after a new deck, would you add me to your distribution list? Um, or uh, would you come talk to us about this? Because this is, you know, this is really resonating with the types of things we're doing. And one of the things that um, I'm hearing that you've, you've said several times, you know, folks are getting this, they're passing it along, and then people are reaching out to you. And it sounds like, you know, what we used to call word of mouth marketing, right, is a really important ingredient in influence. When we think about influence and, you know, in government relations, for example, one tactic that you can use is, you know, you can run ads and, you know, you can try to get op-eds, but there's something powerful, isn't there, when someone else tells somebody, hey, you should check this out, and somebody signs up. It, it, it has a different cachet to it, doesn't it? Well, look, I, I, I thought it was GE back before it blew up, but, you know, they switched from, you know, would you, how would you rate us one to five to they would ask the question, would you recommend us to someone else? And they concluded that that is the ultimate proof of of uh, of value that they were adding to their customers or to their clients. So it's similar, you know. There is word of mouth, although word of mouth in the digital age is very different than word of mouth pre digital. And so, you know, I, it's I, like anybody. There's a degree to which I would like virality. Just my rule is I'm not going to dunk on people on Twitter, and I don't want outrage virality. I want interesting virality. I, let's talk about social media because not only do you use it to get your message out, uh, but you know you must be paying attention to all the conversations happening right now around data privacy and regulation, and you know you're, you're you have your finger on the pulse of that as well as um, you know the ownership change of Twitter and some companies pulling their ad dollars from that platform. So I wonder, you know, what advice do you have specifically for leaders who are wondering how should they invest their time and their energy into social media? Um, when they want to influence others to achieve their their goals, I guess I'd start with great caution. I think it, uh, the so social media can suck a lot of time and a lot of energy and give you a very false sense of reality because you know the percent of people who are very online is tiny. The number of people with or using bots or otherwise, you can get a very false sense. I mean, start with you know if you're a teenage girl a false sense of what people think of you or whether people like you or other things. But as a business leader, um, I would be very cautious about social media. It, you know, some people, uh, some people virtue signal and moralize too much. Uh, it, it leads to the, you know, it leads to acting before you think, because to be in the Twitter conversation, you have to be rapid. I find almost anything that I do, I have better, I get better work if I get a night's sleep, if I think on it, if I ask other people for opinions and, and ideas. And so, you know, for me, because a lot of what I do is content creating and, you know, it's my Twitter rules are don't dunk on people, don't be an asshole, um, share interesting information and data. I work really hard to unspin it as much as possible. This is the really hard because, you know, I will see a, a, a chart and I will want to then have a conclusion or even a, you know, a goody goody kind of statement. And I'm like, unwind it. This is just healthcare spending per country among rich countries in 2021. Stop. Yeah. The Twitter universe is going to get into, well, this proves this or this proves like just, I thought the data was interesting. And so I try to make my feeds um, generally data that I've seen occasionally my own data charts or other things that I think are interesting, occasionally quotes from a 
you know, from a Ross Duthit or a uh, or a Peggy Noonan or or, uh, or somebody that I thought, uh, you know, uh, Noah Smith, Matt Iglesias, who wrote something really interesting that like, wow, you know, Derek Thompson's one of the best. People should think about this because it makes you think about something in a different way. You know, what would I want to read? And I wouldn't want somebody uh, preaching to me. I wouldn't want somebody telling me the other side is evil. Um, but just here's something you may find interesting with a really tiny bite of why you may find it interesting. It works for me because I'm in the business of information, ideas, and persuasion. Um, I think for a lot of people in a lot of other businesses, be cautious. Definitely don't let yourself get sucked into the doom scrolling and spending, you know, if you spend hours a day reading Twitter and you are not, your job isn't an extreme online job, you are not, it's not the highest and best use of your hours, you know, which again, there's a lot I'm sure you get into, but it leads me to the can you start each day with what do I need to get done each day and what do I want to get done today? And nobody on that list says three hours of Twitter fighting. Yeah. Well, it sounds like an important thing that that you've figured out through various ways that you communicate is your voice and the positioning that you want to take. You've said several times you don't want to dunk on other people. You know, you don't want to um, get into that negativity. You want to present information that you want to that you find interesting, uh, but you want to do it in a way that's that's visual and makes sense to folks. And have you did you just naturally sort of have that voice and that point of view, or is that something that's evolved over time? Well, I've never been in the you know stab other people in the eye uh, world. Although ironically, the one tweet that I ever did that I think is now up to like literally ten million impressions was during the uh, during the the debate. I guess it was in 2020. Uh, I just tweeted Bloomberg brought a wallet to a knife fight. Um, and for reasons I don't quite understand within like two minutes, both Ron Klain and Donald Trump Jr. had both retweeted it. So it kind of went supernova. Um, but it, it's not me. You know, it's it's uh, I've never really been in the arena. I've been kind of near the arena, but I've got a lot of sympathy for people in the public arena. They they, they could make more money and, and have, you know, have their weekends and their nights and you know, and maybe you agree with them or maybe you don't agree with them, but they're doing their best. And, you know, we've gotten this screwed up world where now it's, you know, you can find a really good person like Mitt Romney and try to find a way to, you know, rip him apart and ridicule him about the dog on the roof and the kennel kind of thing. I mean, he's not cruel to animals. He didn't wage a war on women. It, I'm sympathetic to a lot of elected officials in both parties who are doing their best. And yet, you know, there is... Uh, Outrage can be monetized, and that's what's happening with fundraising, and that's what's happening in so much of media. Um, part that's the business of media; it's angertainment. And right. so, as a result, for a lot of people, um, it's all about attacking. And that's it. Both I wouldn't be good at it. I don't. I don't. You know, it's it's one of those you have. It, you do that. You take at the end of the day, you end up with wanting a silkwood shower. Like I don't feel good about myself. Whereas. I feel like when I say positive things about others or others' writings, I feel personally kind of better. And so it's that tiny dopamine, you know, makes me a little bit happier. So great. Well, if that, if that makes you a fraction happier, do it a hundred times and you're, you know, you're uh, you're a larger portion happier. It's It was not a trial and error by bad. The trial and error by bad I found is the the conclusion that my most, if if judged by the most vis most shared, most interested, most liked, my best tweets, say the least. You know, the the positivity piece, we've done some research on chief influencers and folks who, you know, are leaders who punch above their weight. 
And one of the five pillars that we found that they do is they elevate others. And we found that not only does it feel better, right? Because it's just kind of feels good when you shine light on others and celebrate them, but it works better because um, people react well to that positivity. And, and obviously when you, when you give somebody some positive, you know, feedback, they, they may actually share it or something. Um, obviously in politics, we do see some things that are negative tend to perform really well, but from a, and that might work well from a campaign or from a negative point of view, but from a leader that, that positivity seems to, uh, perform best if we're looking for long-term influence rather than just that, that short-term bump. Uh, there's a ton of, of leadership literature, obviously out there and some extol the, the, uh, you know, the, uh, Jack Welch fire, everybody who's not, you know, top fire, what 5% of the workforce every year to just kind of keep it fresh, um, it, reward the winners, but, but make pain for the losers. And, and there's some of management to that. Uh, I, I'm not, I am really good, I believe, as a as a colleague for high performers who want to be successful. And I'm not good. I'm definitely not good for people that kind of need to be moved along. And I'm I'm not great in my mind for people that need to be uh, mentored and coached. I've got colleagues like Elise Pickering I've worked with for 17 years, or David Thomas, who are wonderful coaches and mentors, and you know, and they bring people along. I I, I find um, I, I'm definitely. I think I, I'm good at leading by example. I'm really good at sharing the wealth, the glory, the fun, the credit. Um, and uh, and I try to be, and I've the best compliment I ever received was from an old commerce department buddy named Mike Gallagher. But basically the feedback was he felt like everybody he runs into all day, either people who report to him or people who are peers or compete with him or whatever, suck his energy, he said, except me. And he said, I was like the one, like, you know, the just, Whatever he running into me, I was the positive energy, which, you know, that literally it's if you told me, okay, you know, your work is done. What do you wanted to say at your funeral? I'm like, boy, I'd love it if they brought that line uh, out. And I really do try to be, whether it's on a personal level or professional level, like try to be the guy who absorbs all the negative energy and reflects positivity when you can, you know, and if it means you need to go do an hour workout a day or, you know, and I, and I think. I try to be that guy. And I think to the extent I can, that is a reflection upon the fact that I just had a very fortunate upbringing. Mom loved dad, dad loved mom, you know, a, 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 a uh, did not have a lot of, uh, you know, did not, I didn't need to develop a lot of resilience because of bad things. I was able to develop, I think solid resilience because I've lived a very blessed life. Uh, or at least my first three decades were, you know, gave me a wonderful foundation to just generally be positive. People, mm. for the most part, were good. Things, for the most part, worked out. I just tend to believe things, you know, look at the American history for all the things people are all stressed about. If you look at the 70s, if you look at the, you know, 1920s, the Gilded Age, like back and everybody's always worried that, you know, that the good times are behind us. Um, and 20 years later, we learned that we were living in the good times. Now we think it's bad. And and the arc of American history and the arc of human history has been one of, of positive uh, improvement and gains. So, it, you know, if you can just read a lot of history, it, you'll conclude there's a lot of good reason to be positive. You know, as you talk about history, I want to ask you um, about inspiration. You know, we found that some of the best new ideas and the best inspiration sometimes comes from unexpected places. Obviously, what we're doing here with Chief Influencers, we're bringing folks from different industries together, and you interact with a lot of different industries. So I just wonder, 
where are some places that you've found inspiration, um, you know, particularly for, for your leadership style and what works to influence others that may be outside of your core industry, maybe an unsuspecting place where you've gotten an idea or um, inspiration? Yeah, it's boy, what a wonderful question. So, so I guess I'd start with I already tried to tip my hat a little bit on creative inspiration. You know, it's folks uh, considering policy and politics, but from the perspective as a tech writer or as a futurist or as a Wall Street analyst, you know, or as somebody who's you know looking at uh, at you know the global competition or military history, you know, and uh, there's a lot that one can see and one can learn not only about what's happening in today's politics and policy, but seen through other people outside of your industry's eyes that give you instincts, but also, you know, also leaderships. You, you mentioned the uh, interviews, a an unintended uh, upside of a couple of different things. I used to do book events. We do them in our conference room. We'd get small number of people willing to come to our conference room at four in the afternoon. The pandemic happens I shifted to doing them online and realized I could now invite people all around the country or around the world um, and I could uh, to attend. So I suddenly could have more people attend. And I could also invite people that I had gotten to marginally know through the slide deck publication, but who weren't friends and I would never impose upon to come to Washington. So three weeks ago, I had Admiral McRaven, you know, the dude who led the SEAL teams when they got bin Laden. I mean, the guy is a superstar. And he just published a book called The Wisdom of the Bullfrog, where he it's a book for leaders, business uh, institutions like uh, like um, uh, like uh, universities, which he also led. But it was all sort of lessons from his background and the military and the history of great military leaders. You know, and it's you can look there. You can look at business leaders. You can look at you know just regular lives. You know, it's, and it's all of us have these everyday heroes where you know your kid goes to a school and one day at one of the events they're paying tribute to the. You know, to Mr. Tibbs, who taught for 60 years and they're giving him a chair. Um, but, you know, you go and you realize, wow, like this person influenced so many lives in such a positive way. You don't have to the people who the VCs and the others who feel like if you're not, quote unquote, making a dent in the universe, you know, you're wasting your life. I think that's silly. You know, it's if, if you're a good parent, that's good. If you're a good neighbor, that's great. If you, you know, you help the help the person put their you know the old the older person or the person who must who appears to either be small or have a physical thing they want to put their bag overhead in the airplane just what bums me out a little bit about the media culture today and about social media is they leave the impression that everything sucks and everyone sucks and my impression is most people are actually pretty awesome and there's just a small number of very visible online that get way undue attention people who have decided their path to fame is to dunk on everybody else. But I honestly believe most people are pretty nice people. I think it's why our elections work because the elections are ultimately overseen and run by, you know, little old lady retiree down the street who could care less what Tucker Carlson says or what, uh, you know, what Rachel Maddow says, who's just trying to give back to her community. And that's go ahead and, you know, try to corrupt 10,000 of those all around the country of, you know, little old retirees. You can't. I love, you know, the, uh, um, some of the themes that have really come through today is, you know, one generosity, right. Don't keep things a secret, give away Two, the positivity, right. Seeing the bright side on things and seeing really the, that optimistic approach to, to sharing knowledge and how that helps other people and how you can put that positive spin on it. Again, it's no wonder you keep getting invited back to, 
to share your your expertise with all these groups. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, I think your personal philosophy and how that influences how you develop these strategies to influence others. And I just wanted to close by asking, um, you know, about the personal brand versus the professional brand. Because today, obviously, there's more overlap, gray area uh, than ever when it comes to those. I just wonder how how you've navigated that, um, both terms in terms of what you do now, but also, you know, you were in government. So can you talk about that blend of personal and professional brand and your thought on that? Sure. Look, it's 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 a great question that I know a lot of leaders and business leaders think about and ask. At my company, you can kind of start with the cheat, which was not wasn't my plan. But when I started the company, since I was by myself, I said, I'll just call myself Melman Strategies, you know, and we became Melman and Vogel, Melman Vogel Castagnetti. You know, we kept adding names. We actually just came back rebranding um, because there's seven partners. And so the choices were either uh, Melman Consulting, which is what we are, because that's kind of what people always thought of us and shortened us to, or my partners who are awesome, but the name would be Melman, Rosen, Thomas, Pickering, Eastman, Aronson, and Robinson, which felt slightly long to roll off the tongue, although I've gotten practice saying it. So, you know, my personal brand and my company brand have always had a high level of overlap. Um, it's kind of by accident, knowing everything, I might've just picked something that wouldn't need to force us to buy new coasters and logo and t-shirts all the time. Uh, but it is what it is. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm certainly the last guy who has any reason or right to ever complain about that. If you read Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great and a lot of the, you know, and, and uh, Built to Last and a lot of the best management books, he, in Good to Great, he talks about the the things that made that very narrow sliver of companies that, that were able to make the jump from solid in the marketplace to true leaders. And it, he and his team spent years analyzing them. And one of the elements was what they called level five leadership. To shorten it, level five leadership was CEOs who were all about the company more than themselves. So they, um, you know, they they uh, they subsumed their their personal ego needs uh, into the broader corporate needs. And so it's you didn't know a bunch of the CEOs names, but you knew their business. And they lived and died, and they cared almost like a child, maybe more so in some cases, about their company and about the success of the organization and, and of the team. You know, the good news when you're in government is it's always about something bigger than you. You know, short of a president, everybody is part of working for something. I guess if you're a chief, of, well, like the best chiefs of staff, you don't know the names. Most people in the country don't know the names of brilliant chiefs of staff who are the reason so many senators can succeed. The reason you don't know them is because their product is the senator and they're focused on, we want the world to see this as an accomplishment of the senator, not an accomplishment of the staff or the staffer. That's, you know, you learn when you're in government, that's what great staffers do is they make the commerce department or the secretary or the senator or the president shine and look great, you know, and if you do that, you know, it's this, not to torture the crap out of this, but it's the same as sports, you know, where Michael Jordan didn't win championships until it became about the Bulls as much as it was. And he was still the most dominant competitive human being on the planet. But, you know, his first 10 years, it just literally was a unstoppable force of nature, but not yet a coherent team. And it, the management had to ultimately build the right things around him from the coach to the other players. But he also had to get his mind out of, I must dominate everything everywhere all the time to we must. And, and, you know, I think for any leader, you know, anybody trying to influence, 
we is going to have a way greater punching power than I. And let me just follow up on that. How do you think leaders can manage that? Um, I mean, that transition, I like the Michael Jordan example there, when the personal brand of the leader is such an important tool, maybe more important than ever, right? If you think about LinkedIn and how you know, content really needs to come from an individual or if a TV station calls, right? You can't send your logo. You have to send a, a person. And then on the other hand, it can um, feel like that might detract from the team, detract from the company. And so obviously you've you found a great balance of doing that. And I wonder if you could just share advice for other leaders who might be trying to figure out how to navigate that with their team so they are leveraging their personal brand for influence, but um, they aren't just making it all about themselves. I mean, I guess I might say take an all of the above approach and figure out what works for you and your organization and try to exploit that more. You know, obviously, whenever possible, the greater glory of the we uh, makes for a larger organization, a better team, um, a uh, you know, a more successful uh, program. And so uh, it's it's uh, including others within the ideation, within the building of it and giving others credit when uh, when things that the team put together uh, were successful to me are the core um, you're right. At some point, somebody's the lead singer in front of the microphone, and 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 uh, you know, and required to do it. You know, but the band was Queen with Freddie Mercury, and he didn't do as well, at least according to the movie, when he went off on his own. Um, I, I I do my best to try. At the end of the day, the slide stuff is nice and fun. The speaking stuff is nice and the fun, but that's not the. It's a minuscule amount of the success of my law firm. It's. You know, it's uh, Nicole Stefano and 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 uh, and Rosemary Gutierrez and Dean Hinkson and Helen Tolar and just a whole lot of really talented people we have uh, doing the work with clients all day, every day. You know, who are the reason that the business succeeds, and frankly, the thing that gives me the flexibility and the freedom to try to, you know, throw in something that nobody has ordered in the restaurant, but everybody's glad when it arrives at the table. You know, and and it's it's I think for the leader. If you need to be the front person, that's great, but it, you need to share the load and share the wealth and share the glory and share the fun. And if you do that, people hopefully don't resent you for playing a necessary role. And they certainly don't resent you when the front guy gets the tomato thrown in his face. Yeah. I love that. You're the amuse-bouche, that, that extra uh, piece that the chef brings out, it sounds like. Um this has been a great conversation. I It's a great way to wrap it up today. I really appreciate your time. Bruce, can you tell everyone where they can find you if they want to learn more, follow you, and of course, get your quarterly analyses? Sure. Look, you can uh, find me on LinkedIn, Bruce, M-E-H-L-M-A-N. I'm happy to link in with anybody. If they mention uh, they're a friend of uh, Anthony's, I will, uh, I will do it for free. Um, or otherwise, I will do it for free because that's how LinkedIn works. <laughs> on Twitter, I'm at B-P-M-E-H-L-M-A-N. You know, my my pin tweet any quarter is my most recent analysis. If you go to the Melman Consulting website under uh, thought leadership, there's infographics, there are links to the video interviews that I've been doing. So uh, we certainly don't, this is not a well-kept secret. Uh, we're doing our best to, to share it with everybody. And what you'll find is if you can make it to the end of a slide deck, I have my email and I say, email me personally and ask to sign up for the slide decks. And I'm happy to add anybody to my distribution list. I try to make it a little bit. I, I want to have people get through so they know what they're signing up for. It should be both opt-in, but also 
you know, it's uh, just like it's a nice little ego hit when people sign up. It's a bit of an ego blow when people, dec- you know, say unsubscribe me and, and I, I'm over it. I get over it. Um, no reason to have people receive something that they haven't checked out and uh, road tested and concluded they like. That's great. Well, we are grateful that you no longer keep it a secret. I find uh, whether it's the interviews you do or the slide decks, they are all so valuable. And we really appreciate you taking time to share your thoughts for other leaders today on Chief Influencer. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a Chief Influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time, 